It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a conversation with my colleague Ben Lindbergh, who writes about baseball and analytics for the site and has a new book about how he and his friend were given a chance to take over an actual baseball team and implement all their data-centric ideas on the field. Lots of lessons for other areas that are trying to use data in good ways and what happens when spreadsheets meet real people. Now, a note. Often in this moment, you hear me introduce the weekly significant digit, but a little bit of a programming announcement. We're going to make the significant digit a more intermittent thing. We'll still do it from time to time, but most weeks we'll just jump right into the main interview, which is what we're doing right now. Ben Lindbergh is a writer for 538, co-host of the Baseball Prospectus podcast, Effectively Wild, and the new book is The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Ben, do you like sub- – I always give guests a chance. Do you <laughs> I, want me to read the subtitle? I suppose so. Our title is long enough, so yeah. I apologize. The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team, which you, Ben Lindbergh, wrote with Sam Miller yes. as well. But congratulations and Thank welcome you. to What's the Point? Thanks for having me. I believe I've listened to every episode. So <laughs> unless I listen to myself, that streak is about to be broken. Oh, good. There's a quiz at the end of this actually about <laughs> uh, past episodes, so we'll good. see how you do. Um there's a lot of ways to interpret this book. The way that I interpreted this book was as a podcast success story. Because <laughs> yes. I think this is probably the coolest thing that has ever come from someone doing a podcast. Very true. So yeah. so what are, what are the podcast roots <laughs> of this story? And then we'll get into it. So Sam and I have been doing Effectively Wild for a few years now. And a few years ago, we interviewed Dan Evans, who was the former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And at the time, he was trying to revive a defunct independent league called the Northern League. And so he was looking for franchise owners. And Sam and I, during the interview, said sort of jokingly, you know, if you're looking for people to take teams, we'll take one. And we were kidding. <laughs> but once we said it out loud, we thought, hey, that's actually a pretty cool idea. And after the interview, Dan didn't dismiss it as insanity. And so we sort of got stuck on the idea. Now, his league never got off the ground, but we kind of kept it in the back of our minds for a few years. And on one episode, we mentioned that we had never been to an independent league baseball game, and someone from the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league team in the Pacific Association in California, emailed us and said, hey, why don't you come out to a game? And Sam did, and it seemed like a nice place to spend a summer and good people to work with, and we pitched them on this idea. And at that level, teams are just happy for the promotional value and the publicity, but they knew our work, and they thought this would be a fun project. Can you talk a little bit more about the league and the nature of the league and how mm-hmm. many games there are, where it is, what mm-hmm. are the teams are in that? You know, Yeah, it's a small league. It's four teams, uh, which is appealing to us because it meant that we could be at every game and we could sort of you know, watch every at-bat and develop these sort of files on every player more quickly than we could if we were only playing them a few times. And it's in Northern California? Yes. Wine in, country? In Sonoma, in right? wine country. Good, it's good beautiful. Good thing you didn't pick the, like, South Dakota <laughs> exactly, league Exactly. Yeah, we could have been in Bakersfield or something, but we were in Sonoma and the weather was perfect every day and as a New Yorker I was just eager to see precipitation again at the end of the <laughs> summer but but it was beautiful and you know it, it sort of arose out of the ashes of a previous independent league that's sort of how it works in independent baseball one league goes down and then a few of the teams relocate to a new league and it's just this process of renewal over and over again but it's a, a professional league and, you know, the players don't get paid a ton, but they don't have much expense either because they have host families that put them up and often cook for them and drive them around. And so 
it's really just a, a fun summer for them, even though they, they all realize that they're long shots. And, and some of them, you know, they're just sort of playing out the string. There was a player on our team who knew he was retiring to become an accountant at the end of the season. And then there are guys who really do want to climb the chain and, you know, become the, the success story, the, the rare major leaguer who comes from the independent Does league. that ever happen? It does. Yeah, it's rare, you know, rare enough that uh, it's a, a long shot for sure, but also happens enough that people can kind of cling to that hope. You said there's four teams in the league? Yeah. But they mm-hmm. don't just keep playing each other over and over they and over. Do. <laughs> so you have a lot of – so yeah. that's actually really good for data, It worked right? out very well for us, yeah, right. because, you know, a few weeks into the season we had seen everyone a bunch of times, and so we could pick up on their tendencies much more quickly. What are the teams? Uh, the Vallejo Admirals uh-huh. and the San Rafael Pacifics and the Pittsburgh Diamonds. And you were the Stompers? Where did yes. the Stompers come from? The Grape grape Stomping. Oh. Yes. So mm-hmm. did you have purple uniforms? <laughs> no, but uh, there was Wine Wednesday at the ballpark. Oh, that's – another good mm-hmm. perk. Yes. Um, I am curious about their their motivations yes. for doing this. I think mm-hmm. we know yours. Just, you know, like, of course, we're going to take a chance <laughs> right. to sort of do this experiment in real time. But paint the picture of what is the Northern League or the, the Independent Pacific Association. The Pacific yeah. Association and yeah. the Sonoma Stomp. I mean, how, what, what level are we talking about here? It's roughly a ball-ish, but it's not affiliated ball. So it's not affiliated with a major league team, which was good from our perspective because it meant that we could experiment and sign people and have some freedom to work, which we wouldn't have been able to do in affiliated ball. Because when you're building a team like this, it really is just like, go get players, put right. slap a uniform on them yes. and play in front of how many how many people show up to a uh, Stompers game? It could game? vary from a few hundred to, you know, maybe a thousand mm-hmm. at, at the most. And so the wins and losses don't matter that much at that level. Of course, everyone wants to win, but all of these teams are just sort of scraping by and trying to survive and they're trying to put people in the seats and that's sort of of paramount importance. And so... At this level, there was no real baseball operations department. There was no scouting. There were no stats. There was nothing. Essentially, the the GM is as much a businessman as a, a talent procurer. And so he was, you know, worried about whether there'd be enough hot dogs at the ballpark from from day to day. So he was happy to have the help and happy to have people come in and sort of run the baseball side of the team while he worried about making sure there was a team. So this, I guess, was a pretty good petri dish for you. But what was the initial negotiation like? What were the were there sort of clear terms about what your role would be when you came in? And, and we never actually got anything in writing, which I was very nervous about the whole time. Uh, but no, it was sort of open ended. It was sort of here are the keys to this team just come in and you know try not to embarrass us but if you want to sign a player you can sign a player if you want to be in the dugout during games you can be in the dugout during games so it was sort of absolute power in theory although as we quickly found out there are obstacles to wielding that power right so did you hold yourself to a very strict uh, saber are people still using the word saber metrics? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So did you hold yourself mm-hmm. to a very strict sort of saber metrics approach and said we are only going to do what our algorithms tell <laughs> us to do in terms of uh, player acquisition and, and so forth? That was the plan. That was what we intended to do. And then we got there and discovered that there weren't any stats really. <laughs> we would you know, we're so used to having every statistic at the tip of our fingers, how hard someone hit a ball, how hard he threw it, how many times it spun on the way to the plate. And we got to the Pacific Association, we found out that all there really was was some charts that pitchers had made during games the previous year and some stats that had been collected by high school kid volunteers who Wait, sometimes did show up. charts that pitchers had made? Like they were collecting their own stats? Yeah, that's yeah something pitchers do. They sort of, yeah. on the days they're not pitching, they watch the other person mm-hmm. pitch and record where he throws the ball, that kind of thing. So there wasn't a whole lot to work with. And so before we could do any analysis, 
we had to come up with data. You which kind of took a time machine. We did. Back absolutely. To, what, it was like 1970s going baseball? back a few decades yeah. at least to old school baseball. And, you know, we had this ambitious book proposal and we're going to do all these crazy things. And then we got there and it was really hard to do anything. And so there was a moment when we thought, okay, we have to build a baseball team now. Where do you get baseball players? And it was something we, we didn't know because even if you play fantasy, even if you play in some crazy keeper league where you're signing 16 year olds or something, there is a universe of potential players. There's a pool of talent that you can sort and filter and choose people from. And there was nothing like that for us. It was, you know, 7 billion people in the world. So where do we start? And the first player we tried to sign was a catcher with a broken hand who was also Sam's cousin. And (laughs) he said, no, (laughs) he said, I'm waiting for a better offer. So that was demoralizing. Yeah. I guess this does really have implications for other fields, right? Which is you hear about this. I mean, we talk about it on the show all the time, this sort of rush into data. People get infatuated with data and then mm-hmm. they show up and realize like, oh, it's only as good as the data I can put into my algorithm. And when mm-hmm. you're working with really limited data sets, it really sort of you have compromise. Mm-hmm. So did you feel this was a fair assessment given the limitations of the data that you were working with for sort of whether you can run a team this way? I think so. I think we got to the point where we were doing the things that we had planned to do. It just it's taken much longer than we had anticipated, and we ended up signing a lot of players just purely based on stats, which is you know, not our preference. If we could have sent scouts out and watched video and, and taken in all the information that we could have, we would have, but we had no resources and not much time. So we ended up signing a lot of players just based on their college stats, players who had been passed over in the major league draft but had succeeded enough in college that we thought that they could succeed at this level. And so we signed them sight unseen and they showed up to spring training and, you know, we didn't know whether they would have a sore arm or they would have mm-hmm. put on 50 pounds or, or what. We knew them as names and numbers mostly. And a lot of them did show up and succeed. And a lot of them, I think, also showed some of the shortcomings of our numbers, you know, based on small samples. We had to, to make some decisions based on smaller samples than we normally would be comfortable with, I think. And it's tough when you're trying to translate across different leagues and levels of competition. So there were some compromises that we had to make, but I think eventually we got to the point where we were comfortable making data-driven decisions. But what you were, what you were saying earlier about the best way to do this decision would have been a blend of the analytics mm-hmm. and the sort of experience of seeing someone in person or yes. talking to them or, or talking to people who'd seen them play or whatever. So it is worth pointing out for context that you know, you are very far on the sort of sabermetric side, but you are not a pure, like, data drives everything kind of person. I think right. you're mm-hmm. in a very 530-80 way. Think of data as a tool that you blend with other sure. elements. And is that kind of maybe to take a step back and look at sort of the, the state of baseball as a whole? Is that mm-hmm. kind of where we are now? Because I think a lot of people checked in when there was Moneyball going on and it felt like there was this big pitched battle between, like, scouts and quants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But are we now kind of at a place where it's like a little more of a blended, comfortable, how does baseball feel about 
yeah. analytics right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think everything is data. Everything is information now, regardless of of what it is exactly. So Rob Arthur and I wrote something for 538 recently about how there's just been a, a hiring boom in baseball and teams are hiring analysts and R&D people. But at the same time, they have expanded their scouting department. So it's not really an either or thing. And and things that were traditionally the domain of scouts are now sort of blended. You know, the, the lines are blurring between stats and scouts so that scouting reports are being turned into data. You know, you can look at the tool grades that a scout puts on a player and turn that into data and then use that to project players or the information about how hard someone throws or how their pitch moves or how fast they run. All of that used to be the domain solely of scouts, and now it's the domain of things like StatCast, you know, this technology that tracks players and tracks batted balls, and and we had some of that at our level last summer. So it's all really just blended into this big bucket, and everyone is making use of any information they can. It brings to mind something that our, our boss, Nate Silver, kind of has been talking about in the last week or so, which is he sat, kind of soured on this notion of data journalism, and he mm-hmm. wants us – this isn't a directive. He just thinks that we should talk about it more as empirical journalism. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is that even the anecdotes can be turned into something empirical and then compared in a more s- strategic way. Yeah. Were there specific things that you and uh, Sam prioritized with regards to players that weren't being prioritized by the people on this squad? I, I think at first it was sort of your classic money ball just finding inefficiencies and players who were undervalued for reasons that weren't necessarily relevant at least at this level you know we signed sidearming pitchers and pitchers who didn't throw very hard and guys who were very short and small and didn't have your typical pro athlete bodies and so they were passed over by scouts maybe with good reason you know maybe they'll never be major leaguers but at this level we thought that they could succeed and a lot of them proved us right about that but but we really did take in any information we could. One of the first things we did was set up a, a scouting network. So we would have volunteers or Sam and I would go to all of the games every night, you know, the opposing games too. And we'd set up a video camera and we would chart the games on our computer and we would just build this database so that we could show our players there at bats the, the previous day or they could see the opposing starter the day before they faced him. And, and that's sort of standard stuff at the major league level. But for these guys, it was, you know, wizardry. They had never <laughs> encountered anything like this in their college careers or, you know, at this level of independent ball. Were they receptive to it? At first, I I think we sort of had trouble selling ourselves. You know, we we came in and we were intruding in this territory that nerds and stat heads like us really had had never, you know, broached before. I mean, we were just sort of in the clubhouse before games, in the dugout during games. And I think at first there was some question of why we were there and what we were doing there. And, And at first we didn't have a whole lot to offer because we needed some time to gather information. You know, we couldn't start telling people to to shift you know we we had infielders and outfielders move around the field based on where we thought the batter would hit the ball but we needed time to figure that out before we could issue any instructions so for a time I I think it was you know what are these guys doing here and then eventually once we were able to offer concrete information and you know write on a whiteboard in the dugout that this guy throws this hard and he throws this pitch this number of times and in this count he'll throw this to this location and You know, some guys, I think, worry about information overload and they don't want to be 
thinking about stats when they're at the plate and just trying to do this incredibly difficult physical task. But I think a lot of guys did see some value in it and at least told us that there was value in it, though maybe they were just sucking up for the book. And how much, <laughs> um, and how much were was it critical that you give someone an advi- advice and it has to pay off? Right? Because mm-hmm. you, you deal in probabilities, as yeah. we all do. So <laughs> right. obviously, I'm sure there were moments where you gave someone advice and it didn't pay off. Yes. You know, was there a confirmation bias or a bias <laughs> towards like, oh, these nerds don't know what they're doing he didn't he didn't do that pitch that, that i thought they were going to do yeah definitely there that's sort of what the title came from i mean the title is you know it, on one hand we were just trying to do anything the only thing that mattered was whether it worked and we didn't care how weird it was but there were also times during the season where it really did come down to something working that one time even though we thought in the long run it would prove itself to be the right strategy if it didn't work this one time then we wouldn't get a second chance because players just wouldn't accept it and so yeah there were times you know early on where we set a guy through a certain pitch and the players saw it as a different sort of pitch and so there was some grumbling about that or the first time we put the shift on it backfired and there was a a hit allowed that wouldn't have been allowed probably if the shift hadn't been on and so we thought oh no you know it's like the third game of the season and they're never going to want to do this again but fortunately the pitcher who came in later that day believed in us enough to say hey if you say this is going to work in the long run then let's keep trying it and then it worked and it was uh, a moment when I, I think sort of our our strategy was validated Talk a little bit about the process of convincing the people inside the clubhouse and I guess the management yeah. you know, to, to your way because you can have all the ideas in the world, but unless you get buy-in, right? It is mm-hmm. a team. Uh, it's not going to work. Yeah, and we couldn't come in and say, you know, hey, I, I write for Baseball Prospectus or whatever. That doesn't mean anything to, to people at this level. So you have to give them actual information. And so I think a lot of them were curious, you know, just sort of who were these strange life forms in their clubhouse? What are they doing here? And I think the players that we signed were naturally more receptive to what we were doing because they had jobs because of us. You know, even if they didn't understand what exactly the spreadsheet said or why it said it, they knew that they were on it and they were at the top and that we had given them a job because of it. So they were more receptive, whereas I think some of the veterans who had been there before us sort of knew what it was like to play there without us. And they knew that we were not fixtures and that we were the newcomers and the carpetbaggers. And so... There was naturally a resistance, I think, uh, on the part of the veterans to rookies, which is sort of an age-old baseball thing because every new player who comes in means some old player has to go out. And so there's this Darwinian struggle for roster spots even at that level. But there's also this sense that, you know, if you haven't proven yourself, then regardless of what the stats say, you might get there and, and everything might turn out to be different. And we sort of kind of resented that. You know, we thought these guys had proven themselves. It doesn't matter that they've never succeeded at this level. But we did sort of find, you know, even in ourselves, Sam and I, just we were rookies too. And there were a lot of things that we did wrong that we would do better if we could do it again. And so... You mean in terms of the trying to make your case yeah, scenario? And yeah. So. I, I think, you know, we were constantly trying to negotiate how we would present this project, how assertive we would be. You know, would we come in and just be tyrants and dictators and say this? is what we're doing or would we try to be diplomatic and have it be a a negotiation and a conversation and 
And I think we were tentative just because we were very much out of our element. And so we were naturally treading lightly at first. And and I think there's probably something to be said for just sort of acting like you've been there before. And, you know, the authority just accrues to whoever acts like they wield it. There was this moment late in the season when one of the bench coaches of another team, a rival team, showed up in our dugout before a game and just said, I'm with you guys now. And he was looking for a job with our team, and we didn't think he had one, but he sort of sat there, and he's a baseball man, and he's been in the game his whole life, and he said, I'm with you guys now, and no one really questioned him on it. And he sort of sat there on I the— I should try that next time I'm looking for a job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he sat there the whole game, and then he left the next day and went back to his old team, but he had been there this whole game just because he looked like he belonged and said he belonged, and we sort of learned something like that. If we were to, to do this again, I think just based on having the experience and having one season under our belt, we would act more confident and we would project that confidence and and people would probably be more willing to to buy in. Thinking about the players that you were working with, we've talked a little bit about the ones who resisted, but like, can you describe what it was like to encounter a player who was open to this? I mean, what is someone who is a player that you enjoyed working with and was yeah. receptive to this? Yeah, I mean, Sean Conroy, who's sort of the, the star of the book on the team, he was a player we signed, a sidearm pitcher, didn't throw very hard, but was very successful in a small Division three engineering school in upstate New York and didn't get any attention from scouts, but we signed him. And so he was naturally very curious about all of this. And, you know, his story ended up sort of going beyond stats in that he came out and, and became the, the first active, openly gay professional baseball player, which was, you know, really a, a dimension to the story that we had never anticipated and was a barrier that we were happy to break, uh, even if it was by accident. But statistically, he was open to what we had to say, and he wanted all the information. So, you know, when we would have video of his starts, he'd come to me the next day and say, let me see what I did. And he'd just sit there for an hour just watching over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, we had these uh, modus sleeves, they're called, that you, you put on your arm if you're a pitcher and you can sort of assess your arm angle and see whether that's ideal. And he was open to that and he was open to whatever stats we had to say. And, and you know, he sort of on the first day of spring training said, I want to be the closer. And he had been both a starter and a closer in college. And he came in and said he wanted to be a starter. But, you know, over the course of the season, he was a little bit of everything, which was kind of what we wanted. We didn't want guys to be labeled as a, a certain position and, and then only be able to do that thing. So he ended up closing and starting and being a long reliever and just moving all over the place. And we sort of made the case to him that you are one of our best pitchers and we want you on the mound at the most important times. And he was very receptive to that. And, you know, in Major League Baseball, that sort of debate is also going on. And Angels closer Houston Street last summer, while we were doing this, with Sean said, you know, I'll retire if anyone tries to make me do that. And so it really depends on the person. You know, if if a person is that opposed to it, then no matter what the stats say, it's probably going to be a bad idea. But if you do find the right person who's willing to go along with you, then it can really work out for everyone. You mentioned that for every player you acquire, you have to let someone go. Yeah. What was it like to cut players and then cut them for, you know, for data reasons. Yeah, it was gut-wrenching at times. That was, I mean, that was part of the reason we wanted to do this was sort of to examine our beliefs. And, you know, we exist in this internet echo chamber where everyone subscribes to these same philosophies. And we wanted to question those and challenge those. But we also wanted to look players in the face, you know? I mean, we're we're writers and we play fantasy baseball and we just click a button and add and drop people. And it's very simple and clean but when you're in pro baseball, you have to sit down with the player and, you know, look him in, in the eye and say, we don't think you're good enough to play here. And it's 
terrible because you know these guys have dreamed about playing pro baseball their entire lives and so and i mean at this level if you get cut from this team is there something the, to drop there down are to? a couple levels you there can are go. a couple levels. Okay. <laughs> yes but, but still but not yes, far it's, it's not a good sign yeah. um and so yeah we there were probably moves that we shouldn't that we should have made more quickly that we didn't just because you know we did kind of allow ourselves to one just connect to these guys you know a lot of them just became friends and we were around all the time and it's hard to fire your friend uh but also just you know we we wanted to avoid those conversations and so maybe we were more willing to give a guy a second or third or fourth chance just because we wanted to avoid that painful conversation but we did end up having some and and it was not fun <laughs> but does the does having the statistical rationale for that decision make it easier or harder to it do made that it to someone easier for us i suppose you know just to to feel like we were basing it on something concrete as opposed to just opinion i don't know whether that helped sugarcoat it to the actual yeah. player <laughs> you know hey our stats say you're not good enough oh well okay right. in that or, case. <laughs> but compare that to oh i just don't feel like you're good right. enough or you're not a good fit in the club yeah and they did always ask squishier. for justifications you know why why me why do you think this and and we did at least have a reason i don't know if it really eased the pain of it but we had something to say we'll get back to my conversation with ben Lindbergh in a minute but first what's the point is brought to you by the black tux the problem with wearing a rental tuxedo is that it looks like a rental tuxedo and everybody kind of knows it what if there was a way to get quality crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos rented to you online? The Black Tux was created for people who need to rent a suit or a tuxedo for a special event, but who also think they deserve quality threads and, you know, that this stuff should be pretty easy to do. And that's the best part. It's all hassle-free and it's all done right online. To get started, all you have to do is visit theblacktux.com and select from complete looks or build your own piece-by-piece. Prices start at just $95. The Black Tux designs and manufactures quality-crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos, and I've actually gotten my hands on them. They do feel great. I'm not wearing one right now. That would be a little weird, though I have worn a tux on this podcast before. But the point is, these are the kind of suits that don't make you feel like you're playing dress-up. They just make you feel really sharp. After you've ordered, your suit will arrive at least seven days before your event, which leaves you plenty of time to try it on and tweak the fit, which the Black Tux can help you with. When your event is over, you just ship the tux back in the box it came in for free. It's that easy. Visit theblacktux.com slash point for full details. Make sure you go to theblacktux.com slash point so they know this podcast sent you. Now, back to baseball. If you were writing about this team, mm-hmm. and you know, as with you as a manager, so you were both managing this team, but yeah. also then a beat writer, but with a statsy mind, yes. covering this team, like what decisions that you made would you have questioned? I mean, I think I was I was saved from making some bad decisions at times. Uh, there was one player in particular that I really liked on a, a spreadsheet, and he had done really well in college, and I wanted to sign him, you know, weeks into the season, and. Our manager, who was also a player on the team and just a very experienced baseball person, said, you know, uh, A, when someone's coming from a different league to a different level of competition, you never know exactly how it's going to translate. And B, the guy you want to get rid of, I think he's really good. And I've been watching his batting practices, and I think he's about to start hitting, and I like the way he plays the game and all that sort of soft stuff 
that's hard to quantify, and I was skeptical. And then, you know, the next day he hit a home run, and he turned into one of the best players on our team. So there definitely is something to be said for that experience and that eye test if you do have the expertise. But there was a lot of stuff we did that, you know, would look strange, I think, to a lot of baseball fans if they were watching this game. You know, we we tried playing a five-man infield and a four-man outfield just based on batter tendencies and we tried using our closer as early as the fifth inning whereas traditionally in baseball now you know guys will come in for one inning at a time in the ninth inning only and so we were trying all these things and trying to break out of molds and break barriers and and in some cases it worked but we also did find that you know there was some pushback on that because players sort of like having defined roles and you know, there's some morale aspect to it. You know, there was a, a worry that if we brought in the closer in the fifth or sixth inning and he got out of a jam, then if there's no closer at the end of the game and you blow that lead, then it will be extra demoralizing because, mm-hmm. you know, you had the lead and you didn't keep it. So it's really hard to quantify that stuff. But we did sort of have some some conflict over that, at least. Did you worry about sample size? I mean, this isn't exactly. Yeah. How many games are we talking about here? <laughs> I, it was a 78 game season. Right. And so, yeah, and, and a pretty short spring training. And guys coming from college, you know, uh, four years of college is like, you know, less than a a season of of major league sample size. So, But I mean the in-game strategy that you guys tried. So you try, you know, a radical shift or you try Mm -hmm. bringing a closer in. Mm -hmm. You can only do that so many times in a season. Right. And, you know, who knows? It may just be variance that it doesn't do that well the first five times you try it. Yeah, there were things, you know, we tried to focus on the things that do stabilize pretty quickly. So where a guy tends to hit the ball is something that you can tell very quickly. So if a guy is a pull hitter, then you can see that, you know, in a matter of games, really. And so our plan was just kind of to gather data for the first half of the season and then really apply it in the second half once we had a sample and a database built up. And I think we mostly executed that idea. So did you learn anything new? I mean, what <laughs> were there any ideas incubated here at the with the Stompers that are going to work their way up to double A and triple A? So and- Cubs manager Joe Madden is talking about five man infields now. And uh, you think that came from you? He didn't give us credit, but uh, <laughs> but maybe we uh, we asked him to blurb the book. So he knows about the book. So uh-huh. you never know. Um so I think there are some ideas that could come back, things like that, and, and things like the closer seems to be getting destabilized even this year. There are some teams that are sort of getting away from that saves model and bringing in their best relief pitcher at the moment when you want your best pitcher in the game, regardless of whether you will get this arbitrary stat to save. So I think there are things like that that will filter up and, you know, not necessarily because we did them first and we led the way or anything, but because, you know, they were just on the way anyway. And we sort of had this chance to do it at a level where there's no pressure from mm-hmm. the press and there's not a ton of pressure to win. And, uh, you know, the players are making hundreds or thousands of dollars instead of millions of dollars. And so we had some freedom to experiment. But do you think then with that increased pressure, some of the stuff that you felt like I, I'm just trying to get a sense of how suspicious you are of some of the things that worked because mm-hmm. of the sort of skewed mm-hmm. uh, environment in which you were trying them? Yeah. I mean, there were some things we tried that, you know, uh, we, we didn't have enough of a sample of five men infield to say that, yes, everyone should play five men infield. But that was something that we just determined based on, you know, this guy hits the ball on the ground this percentage of the time. And so it makes sense to have an extra infielder to prevent the hit to the outfield, even though if he does hit a ball to the outfield, it's going to roll all the way to the wall. So that was something that was based on 
stats and data that we thought were reliable, but you know you don't build up enough of a, a sample of actually doing it to say, look, yes, it, it worked conclusively. Uh, so it, it worked in theory, and really the hurdle was getting players to do it. And so we wanted to demonstrate that that could be done even by people without the sort of authority conferred by a, a baseball background. And so we did do that much. And then also there's the element of you don't have as much of a margin for error at these higher levels when yeah. there's like tons mm-hmm. of scrutiny and tons of money at stake like you were saying so you know you try something it doesn't work one time because sometimes things that are you're supposed to be doing yeah don't work and then all of a sudden you know there's 20 beat writers writing about you there's people <laughs> on our parent company spouting off exactly. on tv and so forth so you yes. kind of had the luxury of being able to do something and, and not have all that pressure and scrutiny. yeah and these players were far enough away from the majors that i think they were willing to mix things up in a way that you know if you were at triple a one step away from the big leagues you might say i've gotten this far with what i've done to this point and so i'm not willing to try something new but these guys were getting desperate enough that they were willing to listen. <laughs> <laughs> Always nice. So you got that's the key, right? You got to find a, a community that is desperate enough yes, to listen to exactly. what you have to say. I think that's what we've built here on this show. Actually, um, what was your relationship with Sam like? I mean, you guys host mm-hmm. the podcast every day, yeah, right? Uh-huh. You talk to each other about baseball all the time, yeah. in a sort of abstract way. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you guys are friends. It sounds yes. like you're friends when you listen to the show. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you're thrust into like a working relationship. Yeah, what was what was that like? There was some tension. I think usually, you know, we are separated by a continent usually when we're talking, and so we get along just fine. Uh, but when we were in the same place every day and running this team and writing this book, you know, we we definitely had some philosophical differences about what the best way to implement this was. You know, I remember on on opening day, I wanted to march into the manager's office and say, okay, here's the batting order for today. Uh, and Sam didn't want to do that because he thought we would alienate the manager and it would have this ripple effect and we'd be fighting for the rest of the season. Whereas I thought, well, no, we have to assert our authority now or else how will we be able to do it later? He'll walk all over us. And so we kind of had that sort of debate and that sort of tension throughout the season. And, and was, who won that battle? We can tell people <laughs> that, right? I, I don't know that there was a conclusive winner. I think eventually probably Sam moved toward my side of the spectrum. Right. But uh, there were things that he saved me from doing early in the season that probably would have been bad also. So I think we, we were kind of a, a corrective on each other a little bit. Overall, do you feel like this project was not just a success in that it was fun and you got a good book out of it, mm-hmm. but it taught you sort of larger lessons about the work that you're going to continue to do? I think so. I, I think it taught us about sort of selling yourself and storytelling. You know, we, we probably could have packaged this book as what baseball could teach us about business or something and sold a million more copies. could have we, done a TED we, Talk, we, Ben. Yes, Come we on. should have done that. But really, it, it is kind of about management and, you know, finding a way to present your message to people who may or may not be receptive to it. And you might have the spreadsheets, but don't show people the spreadsheets, you know, make it fun, make it exciting, take the conclusion and and have it be a sound conclusion that was driven by the data, but don't necessarily show your math or know your audience at least and, uh, you know, feel your way forward. And, And so I think we learned a lot about how to sort of present our findings and and that could be applicable really in in any field it certainly is helpful for for writers and you know i think we we got a healthy dose of 
I don't know, humility, but just we, we messed up enough that uh, I think we realize how much work goes into this stuff behind the scenes. And so you can be very quick to criticize a player who's not playing well or a team that's not put together well, but there really is all this work that goes into it and all these sort of behind the scenes considerations that we never see. And so it's probably made us slower to criticize people for failing to do perfectly what we failed to do perfectly. But you also, I will say, had fun and you can definitely, and yes. the, the, that comes through very much so in the book. And yeah. It's I mean, when we were looking for volunteers to be on our scouting network, we, you know, we got so many applications, just people who wanted to do this. We got yeah. a, an email from a high powered lawyer, you know, a, a name partner at a firm who just said, I'm kind of sick of the law and I would like to come out to Sonoma and just spend the summer going to these independent league games. And that sort of reminded us, you know, no matter how hard it was and how little sleep we were getting, this was sort of the dream for, for a lot of people. All right, Ben Lindbergh, uh, congratulations to you and your co-author, Sam Miller. Thank you very much. All right, thanks. There's lots more about Ben Lindbergh's book on our website, 538.com slash podcast. You can read an excerpt there and find a link to his podcast with Sam Miller. You should check it out. And if you're a sports and stats fan, do subscribe to 538 Sports Podcast Hot Takedown. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Jonathan Yales helped produce this episode, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. Another quick update on our data visualization challenge with Dear Data. I promise we're working to go through all the entries, so many entries, but we're actually trying to scan all the postcards and get them online for everyone to see. So be patient, but I promise when that happens, it'll be worth it and we'll do a follow-up episode and keep you posted. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast, as well as the very excellent West Wing Weekly. Check both of those out. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.